Good afternoon, everybody. My name is Bill. I'm a grateful member of the Worldwide Fellowship of Al-Anon Family Groups. Hi. Hi. Can you all hear me? Can you see me? Because I want to make sure you know what a former God looks like. I felt like saying after Ruth uh, made those comments, well, you've heard it all. Thank you very much and, uh, for listening and go out and watch the ball game. <laughs> I appreciate those of you who are here giving up your ball game time. I'll try to get over quick so you can listen to the rest of them. I'd, first thing I'd like to do before I forget is thank the committee, uh, Ann, and, uh, for inviting me here and the committee and, and assigning Ruth and and Juanita to look after me and for me to learn the language of the South. I hope you can understand me. I've uh, had a transition period to learn how to listen to the Southern accents. Uh, I need to tell a story. Um, being a past delegate, I also qualified to go to uh, the past delegates get-together in Atlanta, Georgia, that they have every year. And the first one I went to was about two years ago. Now, these are delegates from all the southeast part of the United States, and you all don't have a unique accent. Each one of you, each state, or even locale within a state has a different accent. I was totally exhausted from trying to listen to about 20 to 30 different southern accents because they don't sound alike. I think those of us who live in the north, when we hear somebody from the south, we think you all sound alike, but you don't. And I think probably when I get back to Florida, people will say to me, where have you been? You're using these diphthong things, you know. <laughs> but I was raised in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. That's my home. Uh, I was born there. I was born uh, of a lower middle income family. Their background was uh, Irish, German, Catholic. Alcoholism was uh, rampant in, in the family that I came from long before I was born. And it had nothing to do, really, in my immediate family. The alcoholism was in my grandparent, my grandfather. So my father was raised in an alcoholic environment. And he had no problem with alcohol later on, but there's a thinking problem in the disease of alcoholism. And uh, those of us who are in Al-Anon, and by the way, I'm not an Al-Anon. I'm a member of Al-Anon. Al-Anon is not a disease. It's a recovery program. And there aren't two classes of people in the world, you know, alcoholics and Al-Anon, because there's a lot of people who should be in Al-Anon who aren't in Al-Anon. And so we invite you to come to Al-Anon if you have ever had anybody in your life that you're emotionally involved with that had a drinking problem. But my dad did have a thinking problem having lived with this alcoholic. He grew up in an alcoholic home. His father had an excellent job for that time period. He was a letter carrier, and so it was that was that monthly paycheck or weekly paycheck, which never got any further than the corner saloon, for the most part. So he was raised in a lot of, not enough to eat, not enough to wear, and when he did earn his own money, if he wasn't careful, his dad swiped it from him when he needed money to drink. When I came along the scene, this uh, grandfather was still actively drinking. Well, he never did stop drinking, but he was actively drinking. And he became a person who I absolutely despised. Somebody I didn't like to be around because he was so self-centered, so selfish. And when we would visit, you know, my father felt obligated to visit his father. We would go visit him and there was only one place we could visit this man and that was at the corner saloon. And he was, he never said hello. It was, 
will you buy me a drink? And he didn't say it that way, but that was what he meant. So, and one day I remember he gave me a gift, and one of the only gifts he ever gave me, I, and I was about 10 or 12 years old, and he says, here, Bill, here's a uh, candy bar. Well, you know, great, Grandpa gave me something. It was an empty candy bar wrapper. And he thought that was funny. Well, certainly it would be funny to a, an adult, but not to a little kid who expected something from this mean old son of a bitch. <laughs> Fortunately, I had a grandmother, a grandfather on the other side of the family, my mother's father, who was a good old German brewmaster. He, uh, he wasn't a drunk. He used to throw the drunks out of the German club on Sunday afternoons when they became rowdy. He was a big six-foot-three guy. And he was a very gentle man. No matter how big he was, he was a very gentle man. So I did have a good example of a grandfather. I had a loving... My parents were both loving parents. I had a good life. I didn't have problems in that kind of a thing. But one of the effects my father had, even though he loved me, he had difficulty in showing it. Because he was raised in an alcoholic home. Where it is, the alcoholic in his life was incapable of showing love. Now, he may have loved my father, but he had no way of showing it. And I remember saying to my mother one time, my mother was very, is very loving, <clears throat> I remember saying to her, Mom, does Dad love me? And she said, of course he does. I said, well, he never shows it. And thinking back as a young boy, my dad would read the funny papers to me, and I'd climb on his lap when I was a little kid, and he would play with me. But then a magic thing happened. Somewhere when you become a man, you know, somewhere around 10 to 15 in that time period, you quit hugging, you start shaking hands, you, you push away. He didn't know how to treat me. He would holler at me, why don't you play baseball? But yet he never once threw a baseball with me. He never once took me anywhere with him. If he went hunting, I wanted to go hunting, Dad, let me go hunting with you. You know, just traipse around behind him. He went small game hunting. Oh no, you're too young. And then when I got older to go hunting, he'd say, well, Bill, let's go hunting. And I was about 18. I said, go kiss my you-know-what. I have other things to do. Who cares about you? That's what happens. Teenagers, they get to be rebellious, regardless how well you treat them. So you've got to keep in mind, this alcoholic in my life, this grandfather, was somebody who I absolutely despised. He was the town drunk. We didn't know anything about alcoholism as a disease. He was somebody I didn't want to be around. He was, he's somebody who caused problems. He would call my parents up in the middle of the night and say things like, if you don't get in here, uh, my dad had younger brothers living at home with my grandfather, and he'd say to my dad, if you don't get in here, I'm going to kill these SOBs. So my dad would drop everything and run in, and there'd be fights and arguments, and it was terrible. And when the phone would ring, ring at 3 o'clock in the morning, we'd all know it was drunk, drunken grandpa calling again. Uh, the kind of environment I was raised in, even though it was loving, it was an environment with... Uh, well, there were discussions occasionally, and the kind of discussions would you know, evolve into an argument, and all marriages have arguments, but my, their argument would be, uh, my mother would say, regardless what the, how it started, it usually ended up with, you're just like your father, she'd say to my dad, of course, he, he didn't want to be like this man, you know, and he'd say, well, you're just like your mother, and that's another story, but she didn't want to be like her mother. So they would think about maybe leaving, departing company, and my dad would pack a bag and he would start down the steps and she'd say, don't go, and then it'd be make up, everything would be okay. But my thoughts was, if you argue, one of the people are going to leave. Now that's what I carried with me into my adult life. Uh, 
I was academically, uh, after I got my glasses, academically I was very good. Uh, I was failing classes and school and everything before I found, everybody found out I couldn't see. Once they discovered I needed glasses, everything went well. I got out of high school and I went to college with my father helping me and myself working. We were able, I was able to get through college and got a degree in electrical engineering. And at that time, in 1956, that was a good thing to have because there was a lot of people just dying to get you. You didn't have any problem getting a job. But I went to the Air Force for three years first because uh, it was during the uh, Korean conflict when I was in college and I needed to have a deferment in order to uh, continue my college, so I, I was in the ROTC. And so as soon as I graduated from college, I was called to active duty and I went into the Air Force for three years. And that was a wonderful experience. I have no regrets for that. In fact, that's how I met the love of my life. I had spent a year in Korea. The hostilities were pretty much, well, they were all wound down. We were just doing policing kind of things there. And I got reassigned to Griffiths Air Force Base, which is in upstate New York. Snow country. We have 170 inches of snow every year up there. And I thought, God, I couldn't imagine living there. I thought it was, excuse the expression, the asshole of the world. Because the snow banks were seven and eight feet tall. And you, we had a, you had to put little flags on your antenna, your automobile, so when you got to an intersection, they knew somebody was coming, so you wouldn't just jam into each other. But I never wanted to live there. But I, a gal came into the office one day, a new secretary. And I had been dating the nurses and some people in, uh, some gals in Pittsburgh, driving back and forth from Rome, New York, to, to Pittsburgh on, for a weekend dates, uh, dating some nurses during the week. But this gal arrived, and I thought, gee, she seemed pretty nice. We went out on a date. And we just hit it off wonderfully. I mean, we got drunk on our first date. You know, it's one of those kinds of things. I had been engaged once. She had been engaged once. And we sat around drinking at the officer's club, talking about our past lives. And before you know it, we were both so drunk we could hardly get home that thing. Well, the Air Force, or like a lot of military, is a drinking society. You have happy hour and beer call. And there's parties galore. And it's a lot of fun. And most of us get through it, but some of us don't. We were... We went together about six months, and I asked her to marry me. And about six months later, we were married. And we had a wonderful marriage. Our goal was to have four children. That was our goal. And we were married, and about a month after uh, I was married, or maybe six weeks after we were married, my wife discovered she was pregnant. We were, couldn't have been happier. I had just gotten out of the Air Force, and I decided to stay in Rome, New York, and I got a good job up there for the uh, civil service working in, as a research engineer. And it was something I always wanted to do, and it was really great. So we had a good job, a lot of money coming in. We had a nice apartment, a new marriage, baby on the way. What more could you ask for? And this gal was really nice, too. And she was a very outgoing person, very easy to get to know. Now, we didn't do a, a lot of, uh, we didn't get drunk a lot then. At, at one time when we uh, got drunk on our first date, that didn't happen as a, as a rule. But there was a lot of drinking, and it was a lot of partying. And life was great. I couldn't have asked for a nicer person. I really was in love, and I thought she was. I think she was, too. So we had a great life. So why, why am I standing here? Well, it didn't last. Somewhere, well, we, had, we proceeded to have two more children. And then, in 1970, uh, well, we were happy with uh, three children, by the way. We thought maybe we didn't want four children because, you know, three children were, that was a lot to handle. But for, fortunately, I guess we got the fourth child. And after my wife got over the initial shock, we were happy about that fourth child. 
you know, it was funny that it wasn't until we got the four kids that we really started enjoying the children. Because before we were Mr. and Mrs. Perfect, they had to be cleaned up and everything had to be read up and fixed up. Everything had to be just so. When we got the fourth child, everything seemed to be relaxed. But about the same time, a little bit after that, I noticed something about me. I didn't feel comfortable about something. Now, I'm telling you about my wife's alcoholism, not to ridicule her or demean her. I have to tell you about it because how, how it affected me. Uh, we would go to parties, and we were the life of the party. Well, not the life, but we were one of the lives of the party. We stayed to the last ones, uh, you know, the last, there's always that group, of maybe 10 or 12 people that are still there when the restaurant's going around and picking up the, the cigarette butts and the tables are being moved and cleaned off and the chairs are putting up, they're turning off the lights and they, first you know you're sitting in the dark and you wonder why, but we're having a good time, you know, it's only 2.30, I mean, it was, but anyhow, we had a good time and things were okay and we'd go home. If anybody had a problem drinking, it might have been me because I was relaxed. I was having a good fun. I liked to drink with people. Didn't necessarily like to drink by myself. But what happened when I started getting uncomfortable is when we'd get home from that party, I was, that was it. I had plenty to drink. Didn't need any more. But my wife needed another drink. And I would say to her, why do you need another drink? Didn't you have enough to drink? She could outdrink me, by the way. I mean, uh, she would never get, I never saw her drunk out of the house. Never. Including after she was drinking heavily. Well, she, I just need a nightcap. Well, later on I found out that she had many nightcaps after I'd go to bed. At first, uh, I just felt something uncomfortable. And uh, in the disease of denial of alcoholism, you don't want to admit that there's somebody that you love that has a drinking problem. And so you suppress it. And it, what does it do? It hurts you. And it hurt me. And the more she drank, the more angry I got. And of course, now it was not just drinking after um, a party. Uh, one of our other little habits was, when I'd come home from work, was to have a cocktail before dinner. And that was fine. Nothing wrong with having a cocktail before dinner. Except when, when the cocktail pitcher is this big, and there's only two of us, <laughs> You have a problem because uh, two people drinking a pitcher of martinis or Manhattans like that really get soused. And of course, for, for a while, I thought, this is great, you know, what the heck, being relaxed. I worked hard. I deserved this. And then one day, I, I realized that I wasn't playing with the kids anymore. I realized that I you know, couldn't get out and cut the grass before it got dark because I'd probably wake up about... I might, I might fall asleep after dinner. I'd wake up about 9.30 realize I wanted to cut the grass that night, but it's dark outside. So I said to her, um, why don't we quit this drinking so much and just have maybe a drink before dinner? She said, oh, that sounds like a good idea. So I had a drink, and she started ahead of me. Of course, I didn't know this. We'd have a drink, and she'd be staggering around the house. I'm saying, what? Yeah, one drink? Did that to her? She usually outdrinks me, you know? So, but it wasn't funny. I got angry. And I wouldn't talk to her about it. I would just say, why, you know, why do you have to have that drink? No comprehension of disease of alcoholism. No comprehension of an addiction to alcohol. 
And I didn't think I was uh, obsessed with my wife until I was in Al-Anon for a while. You know, I, I didn't realize that, that now this person had become an obsession of the center of my life that I only thought about night and day, except when I was involved with my research project at work. One day it dawned on me that I was married to a drunk. Now remember, my idea of a drunk was his grandfather. And now I had this person in my house that was an SOB, just like this person that I had been raised around, my grandfather. And I thought, how in the world can I, a perfect person like me, end up with a damn drunk? How did this come about? I mean, this happened not overnight. This happened over a period of years. But I ended up with this terrible knot in my stomach. I had stress pains. And I finally I had to go to the doctors a couple times because I thought I was having heart attacks. And the doctor gave me the stress test and he assured me it was just stress and something was stressing your life. And of course, I think I was in a lot of denial at the particular time when I was going through that and I didn't admit anything to it. I remember one time we were having problems with one of uh, with my uh, one son, and he was just a discipline problem. He had um, he was one of the kind of boys that uh, he got needed attention, and it seems like the only kind of attention he got was negative attention. We only chastised him. We never gave him any uh, pats on the back because he was the one that needed attention. So in one way of getting it was getting involved, break something, do something wrong, hit their sister, whatever. And so we took him to a counselor one time. And my wife says, well, I made this appointment. We, we need to go. We're going to take him. We're going to see what's wrong with him. So if you've ever been to a counselor when you have a problem with a child, you know one of the first things they ask you is about your parents. You know, is your life, is your marriage is good? Is there any drinking problems in your home? And I said, no, there's no drinking problems in our home. And we came out of there and my wife says, last time we're going back to her. Said, yeah, I agree with you. I mean, you know, she wasn't there. Oh, she was just asking us about us. And, of course, this kid was only about 10 years old, so the problem was us, probably not him. So denial, denial, denial. But the only thing it did to me was make me more angry, more angry, more angry. So what did I do? I retreated from the family unit emotionally. I didn't leave it physically. I, I would like to have left it physically, but I didn't. I got involved in playing golf, and uh, I got in the bowling league, and I was... If, if uh, my office needed somebody to go on a business trip somewhere, I would volunteer for it just to get out of, this, out of the house. I didn't want to be around the home anymore. And I felt guilty about that because I loved my kids and we used to play a lot. And I did a lot of things with my children. That was another thing. I, I didn't do what my wife wanted me to do with the kids. But I took an inventory and I discovered I had done a lot of things with these kids. Maybe not what she wanted me to do, but I did a lot with them. Somewhere along the line... Uh, I finally realized that I was married to a drunk, like I said. And I'm Roman Catholic, so I don't believe in divorce, but I haven't quite made up my mind about murder yet. <laughs> so I think I'm... And then, of course, as soon as you think that thought, you say, my God, that's a hell of a thing to think. This is a person I'm, I love. And why am I thinking about killing her? Because I'm trapped now in a marriage that I want, I want to get rid of, but I can't. Again, I'm going on these business trips. I'm going out of town. I remember one time in California, I called home and I said, my little daughter answered the phone. She was about 13 or 14 at the time. I said, well, how's things at home, Chris? And she said, well, you know. I said, oh, your mother is drinking? Well, she's passed out, Dad. Chris became the sort of the, the little mother of the house then. You know, 
She was taking care of things. Her responsibility, self-indulged responsibility. And I said, oh, well, okay. So I hung up the phone, and I'm thinking, well, gee whiz, here I am, California, 3,000 miles away. Now, my wife smokes. When she goes to bed, that cigarette that would just drop out of her hand, the mattress would catch fire, and then she'd burn up. The fireman would get there in time to say, what am I doing? What am I thinking? Crazy thoughts again, you know? Then I'd feel guilty. So when somebody is drinking and you don't know what to do about it, you're affected a heck of a lot more than you think you are. And I didn't know it. I didn't know I was getting angry. I didn't know this knot in my stomach and the stress in my chest, radiational pains in my chest was caused by all this worry. Well, like I say, I deserted the house emotionally and my wife's drinking got worse. In fact, she was drunk almost all the time. I found out later on that what I didn't know was she was drinking uh, early in the morning. She was taking the kids to school. She was drunk a lot of time when she was driving the car. And I didn't know any of this. I just thought she was drinking uh, late afternoon and then passing out at night. And when I'd walk in the house, I really didn't care for her anymore. I'd just walk in, I'd look at her, and she'd be making supper. She was a kind of woman drunk that never left the house to drink. She drank only at home. Her bar was the uh, counter in the kitchen table. That was her bar. I went through the same thing that many of us did, throwing of the booze away and trying to mark the bottles and rationalize why we should drink or shouldn't drink. And I, I remember one time we got in a big fight and I threw all the stuff down a, down a sink and then uh, next day I found out the liquor store delivers. So, you know, <laughs> sort of stupid to throw all the stuff away. I'm looking at my checkbook. I'm looking at all the, all the checks written out to the local liquor store and the guy thought he was doing us a favor. Oh yeah, no problem. I can stop on the way home for lunch and he would stop and bring the booze. And I remember throwing it away. I remember buying extra booze so that uh, maybe she should drink a lot and kill herself. You know, that kind of stuff. And I just got more angry and more angry and more angry. And my children suffered for this too because when I was angry at, her, at their mother, a lot of times I wouldn't say what I was feeling, I would just take my anger out on the kids. If the kids did anything, I don't care what it was, they spilled a little half a glass of milk, I would just raise all kinds of hell, scream, holler, profanities, a, mad, a madman. Well, she finally got sick and tired of being sick and tired and decided she needed to go to a 12-step program for her recovery, and she did. And I said, wonderful, two or three meetings and her life would be better and everything will be hunky-dory. <laughs> it doesn't work that way. She went to AA, and I started going to open AA meetings with her. I didn't hear about Al-Anon at all for quite a while. Uh, I'd never heard of Al-Anon before AA. I'd heard of AA. Of course, I, the way I heard of AA, my vision of AA was a bunch of old men in dirty army coats that were just lusting after these young women that would be coming in through the rooms. <laughs> Well, you're laughing, but there's a few of those around, by the way. <laughs> so, uh, after she went to a few meetings, I decided I'd better go with her, you know, to protect her. I was a little bit afraid of her going down to these, in these church basements up north uh, with all these dirty old men. But she'd come home, and uh, she was all, oh, you know, this is wonderful, this is great. And uh, her drinking didn't stop immediately, but it was in, within months she took her last drink. 
and we had AA people calling all the time, and they were in the house. And, and I, the first three months were really not too bad. Uh, she was trying to do good things, and these people were friendly and nice. Uh, there was a lot of women. There was a few women, I should say. Not very many women in 1977 in the AA groups where we were at. Uh, I remember her uh, coming. Uh, one day, we, she got a card in the mail from one of her AA friends, a nice little lovey-dovey little how-are-you kind of thing card. You know, what's going on here? So, and about this time, my wife had lost a lot of this bloat that you have from drinking, and she lost maybe 30 pounds or so. Her face was no longer bright red, and she'd slimmed on, and she started dressing. She was taking better care of herself now that she, she was not drinking, and she looked pretty good. So this person who I had emotionally detached from, with hatred, by the way, was now looking pretty good, and these people were calling her and picking her up for a meeting, and all of a sudden, Bill gets really jealous. So even though I do like AA today, don't get me wrong, that particular time, booze was no longer the enemy. It was now AA. Because before she was drunk on the couch, and now she's out of an AA meeting. And it wasn't just, you know, it went to the, the thing like one meeting a week, two meetings a week, two meetings a day, two meetings a day with coffee. And one night even, she didn't come home till three o'clock. You know, where have you been? Well, we've been out bowling with the guys, you know. Was there any woman there? Well, no, it was just, you know, Joe and Sam, Mike and whatever. Hey, you're a married woman. You have four kids. I mean, she was. Well, you know, I mean, this is what I need for my sobriety, you know. <laughs> now... I say these kinds of things, I imitate her, but I don't know whether she ever sounded like that or said those words. But they're the kinds of things I was hearing, you know. Well, after that little pink cloud stage that everything seemed to be nice, things got very, very tense. Her sobriety was extremely difficult. Now, she told me it wasn't because she wanted to drink. That God, her higher power, had taken that away from her. She had absolutely no desire to drink. But she wasn't a nice person any longer. She was a very angry person. And, uh, and she had a lot of right to be angry. A lot of things had happened in her life, but it seemed like I was catching the brunt of it. And so our marriage was getting very uh, flaky at the time. So I remember I took a vacation and I took my children with me. We went to visit my mother and dad who lived in Dunedin, Florida at the time. And I spent a few days down there on the beach reading meditation books and trying to calm down because I was just a wreck. You know, a person who I wanted to willed them to die or wanted to kill was now somebody I wanted to spend more time with and live with and stay married to. So when I finally got back from my vacation, I thought I felt better, things would be okay. She had a vacation by herself without the children around you. That's a pressure for kids, you know. They were all pretty young, some of them. So I got back in the house and I think things are going to be good. We both had time to think. No. About ten minutes in the house, I know it's just as bad as it ever had been. Now, I, this is no Al-Anon yet. No comp By this time, I had heard of an organization called Al-Anon Family Groups because I had been going to open, to open AA meetings. But, you know, early when I heard somebody would get up and they would speak and they'd say, I'm a member of Al-Anon, I thought that was the ladies' auxiliary of AA. And some of the women, when they told their stories, they were so damn flaky, I didn't, don't remember them talking about drinking, but they must have drunk for the stupid things they did, you know. God, the stories they told. And, of course... Hear me, I'm this perfect person, there's nothing wrong with me, and I'll be damned if I need any organization to help me. But when I got back from that vacation, my wife had a telephone number for me for a, 
an AA, an AA member's wife, who was a member of Al-Anon, gave to her and said, if your husband ever needs anybody to talk to, tell him he'll be more than, I'll be more than happy to talk to him. So I called her, and I was crying. I was rather hysterical about it. And I said, I don't know what I'm going to do. I feel terrible. I just, everything's crazy. This woman is deserting us, you know, us, the family. And she said, well, Bill, let me take you to an Al-Anon meeting. So, now, I wouldn't recommend this, but this is what happened. She took me to an Al-Anon slash AA meeting. And I went with her and her husband, which were friends. I had met them before. And my spouse, which was not a friend. <coughs> and we went to this Al-Anon slash AA meeting, which was ridiculous because you don't know. Of course, I can't tell who's an alcoholic who isn't an alcoholic. You know, now when you, like like somebody said to me, I, look, I clean up good. Well, you clean up good too, so I can't tell the difference anymore. But I'm in a meeting and we're trying to talk, and of course, there's nothing wrong with me. Remember, I'm blaming everything on her. If she would this, if she would that, and of course, she gets upset with me when I'm saying that, and she gets very angry, and the words start spewing out of her. So we walk out of that meeting, and I says to the, this gal says to me, Bill, what'd you think? And she could see the steam coming out of my ears. I said, this is Al-Anon. I want a goddamn part of it. Give me one more chance. Let me take you to another meeting. I said, okay, one more chance. That next, uh, two days later, she took me to an Al-Anon meeting, which usually has about five or six people at it. But she called around and said, I'm bringing this angry big guy. And we need all the help we can get. So there was probably 10 or 12 people at the meeting. Now, I didn't know I was angry. <clears throat> so we walk in the meeting, and the gals started sharing about their feelings and what they had done during the drinking years. In some cases, these gals were still living with active drinking alcoholics, which was always mind-boggling to me at the time. But others had, you know, they had loving relationships with their spouses. And it was a really nice feeling. I thought, well, okay, there's a feeling of hope. And I identified with a lot of their thoughts, so I decided at least I'll try Al-Anon. Now, I didn't go to Al-Anon for me, by the way. I went to Al-Anon to figure out what the hell was happening with my spouse. In fact, I like to tell that I was so temporary in Al-Anon that I only borrowed a one-day-at-a-time book. book. I didn't buy one. Now, it wasn't cheap. I I certainly well could have afforded it, but I wasn't going to be around. I didn't need these things. I just wanted to find out what I had to do maybe to help her work her program better. Well, that, that old same thing happened to me. I went to one meeting a week, and it's still, I would go to those meetings, I'd say, why in the hell am I here? She's the one with the damn problem, and I have to go to these damn meetings? I'll be damned if I'm going to go to these meetings for the rest of my life. But one thing happened. When I was at that meeting for that half hour, or four, hour rather, I felt better. When I walked out, I didn't feel any better. But while I was there, I felt better. There was something about it. There was some laughter. There was people who had terrible problems. Now, you know, I have, the, some of the stories we heard this weekend are, were terrible. I didn't have any problems like that. But I hurt just as bad. So I stayed. I don't know why I stayed. Our, our marriage uh, didn't stay together. Uh, she had a sponsor, and I believe this is correct, but I believe her sponsor gave her some personal advice, which I know is not appropriate to do. But she told me my, 
Faust told me that in order for her to continue her sobriety, she needed to be on her own. She needed a divorce. And I didn't want to get a divorce, but, you know, if somebody wants to get a divorce, they get a divorce. There's nothing you can do about it. So we got divorced. I moved out. Oh, I got served with papers. I moved out of the house, and I was living in my own uh, bachelor quarters for a while by myself. And I was lonely. I was frustrated. And I was in Al-Anon about two years. I started going to a meeting every day before I'd gone maybe two a week. I was going every day. And I was, there wasn't a lot of meetings near where I lived, so it was a long drive. It was sort of a rural country in upstate New York. Everybody thinks of New York like New York City where there's buildings everywhere, but upstate New York, 240 miles away from New York City. It's rural, dairy country, five minutes away from my home. I'm out in the country. So I had to drive 35, 40 miles to a meeting, and I went every night, and it helped. I got to know a lot of people, and it was really great. The, we had this discussion of who was going to have the kids and so forth, and I finally decided, well, you know, she was basically a good mother to, to the children. Even though she had a drinking problem, and a lot of times she passed out drunk, she did take care of many things about the kids. So I couldn't say that she was an undesirable parent, so I couldn't you know, go to the court system to try to get the children that way. So I agreed to let her have the children and the house, the family house to live in. And my one son, who was about 16 at the time, was causing problems, as teenagers will. He's not a bad boy. He was just ambitious in his environment. So she wanted me to take him. And I said, well, I really can't have two homes. I can't have a home for him and I and a home for you three and four. So I said, uh, I'll take all the children. And the short story is I got all the kids moved back into my family home, which I, when I left, I was so happy to get out of. I didn't want to ever live in that home again. It was so much hostility and anger. And so I ended up getting divorced, and I ended up moving back in my home in 1979 with my four children. The ages were at that time were 9, 14, 16, and 18. And I was working full-time, and I was also beginning at becoming involved in service. Now, I've talked to you a lot about my spouse at this time. And about here is when I stop. And after this is all over, people come up to me and say, well, what happened to her? So I'm going to tell you. She continues her sobriety. Even though we're not married, we, we, we are friends. We, we talk to each other. and we, we are involved in family get-togethers when the kids get to christenings or marriage or stuff like that. We don't necessarily desire each other's company, but we're very friendly when we are together, so we have no problem getting together. And she's doing okay as far as I know. But I noticed when I talk about it, my obsession with her quits about the time I got involved in service. I was obsessed with her drinking. I was obsessed with her working her AA program because about the time I got a divorce was the time I realized that I hadn't been working Al-Anon for Bill. I had been so obsessed with her conduct and what she was doing and thinking and I didn't even know that I had a problem with my thinking. And people were telling me, Bill, you know, the problem isn't your wife. The problem is you. I said, no, I'm perfect. I'm an only child. And my mother and dad just idolized everything I did. No matter what I did, it was wonderful. Bill did this, Bill did that, Bill has accomplished that, Bill has accomplished this. And when I got married, my wife would say, I'm so lucky to have a person like you. You have a good job, you have a wonderful personality, you're just great to be around. You know, people have been telling me I've been perfect my whole life, so why would I think anything else but that? But you know, down deep, you're not. My family never made a mistake. My dad was absolutely perfect. He never did anything wrong. 
Well, if you believe that, I got a whole attic full of junk I'll sell you as antiques, you know. And so I was raised in that environment. If I did anything, I couldn't admit it because we weren't allowed to admit that we did anything wrong. Now, nobody ever told me those words. That's just the way I learned it. When I got into al and I was reading this One Day at a Time book, I thought, that is a wonderful page. This is great. She needs to read this. So I laid the book up on her dresser and said, ah, maybe she'll read it. Well, I found out later on that she was reading her 24-hour book. She'd say, ah, it's a good page. He needs to read this. And she'd lay that on my dresser. Neither one of us read either person's books. Talk about obsession. Well, like I say, about the time that I started recovering is when I got involved in service. And I I hope you don't mind me using that word, service. Uh, Some of you think it's a four-letter dirty word because some of you don't want to get involved in it. Well, I was involved in service before I knew I was. And I didn't get involved in it for any reason except to pay back. By this time, I realized I felt better when I was at an Al-Anon meeting than when I wasn't at an Al-Anon meeting. I finally realized the program was for me. Those first three steps were very difficult for me. I did not have a problem with alcohol. How could I accept that? A friend of mine said, put the word alcoholic in there. Oh yeah, I certainly had a problem with alcoholics. Yeah. My life, I could admit, was a little bit unmanageable. Uh, I don't think I said my life. I think I said my wife was unmanageable. <laughs> and she certainly was. Because, you know, once she got to AA, uh, we... You know, I was sort of the lead decision maker in the home. And if we wanted to go somewhere on a vacation, I'd say, let's go to Cape Cod. She'd say, good. Well, this year we're going to go to Florida. She'd say, good. Where are we going to go out for dinner? How about here? Yeah, it's good. And if she disagreed with me, I don't ever remember it. I mean, she may have disagreed with me, but I don't ever remember it. But once she got into AA, she learned a new word. (laughs) No! Now, this is terrible. Uh, you know, here we've been, we've been living this little game of I do it and you go along with it. I do it and you go along with it. All of a sudden, she says, no, I'm not going to do that. I have my rights. And then she wonders why I'm getting upset just because, you know, she changed the game and I don't know what the hell the game is anymore. So, uh, I guess, uh, remember the first, uh, first two or three months I'm in, in Al-Anon, this little old white-haired lady of course, I'm getting to be a little old white-haired guy now. But this little old white-haired lady would say, I'm so grateful that I married an alcoholic. And I'd puke. Who in the hell can be grateful they married a goddamn alcoholic? I walk out and these people have to be crazy. Well, now I know what she means. She may not be... 100% grateful that she married an alcoholic, but she was grateful that she found a recovery program such as Al-Anon to change her way of thinking. Like I said before, my disease of alcoholism isn't drinking, it's thinking. And I had to learn to change my whole lifetime way of thinking, and that's not easy. I'm not perfect, and it's okay. Oh, thank God. That was such a relief when somebody told me that. You don't have to be perfect, Bill. We don't come to Al-Anon to be perfect. It might be a goal, but it's an unachievable goal. The day I'm perfect is the day they close the lid on the coffin. 
because we don't ever stop growing. And it was also nice to hear the only thing constant in life is change. And that was great for me because I, I used to say to my wife, don't ever change, I love you just the way you are. This is in our happy days, you know, before the drinking started. Don't ever change, I love you just the way you are. She, she, she would say to me, what if I would change? I don't, don't change, you know. When she learned to say no, that was a big change. And that caused a lot of our problems. The, uh, the funny thing about it is when she got a divorce, uh, she found out a few months later that uh, this uh, advice that she'd gotten from a sponsor was not appropriate and she actually ended up firing that sponsor later on because, you know, there are, just because you're in AA or Al-Anon doesn't mean you got it all together. And there are a lot of people that come to these programs and since they can't control anything else in their life, they find some poor pigeon to manipulate and control. And they probably don't even know they're doing it. I mean, I, don't, I, don't, I truly don't believe that any one of us are really bad people. I don't think we ever, ever start out to hurt anybody. But our actions, because of our immaturity or whatever it is, the way we think, we do hurt people. Now, I was angry. I, had, I got some advice, too, from some of the people in, in Ellen on some of them. And I was so angry when I realized that I had been listening to very sick people tell me what to do. Because I would, you know, I was always crying and pissing and moaning about what she was doing. And I'd say, you know what she did, she did this, she did that. And they'd say, well, I wouldn't put up with that. Well, that's giving advice. You know, you could say, well, what I did was, and then explain that, and then I have a choice. But I was so angry that these people had given me advice until I realized that I didn't have to take it that I have to be responsible for my actions too. Sure, I was very vulnerable. And sure, I did take this advice that should not have been given to me. But the consequence was mine and I had to live up to that. Uh, Al-Anon doesn't necessarily save marriages. But if you work the program, it may save your life. And that's how I looked at it. My service involvement began when I... Uh, uh, I, I really just was so grateful for Alan on one of the first things I did was write an article for the newspaper. I took some of our literature and we see what really bothered me is I had when I found Alan on and I had never heard about it before. I thought, why don't more people know about Alan on? So I sat down and wrote an article for the newspaper. I took it down to the local newspaper. It only has 25 pages in it. And of course, they had to have my full name, which is OK. I gave them my full name, but they assured me they wouldn't publish it. And they put in a two-column spread about Al-Anon and all the meetings and everything, and they didn't mention any names, anybody's name. I really felt great. God, at least it got published. We had no service structure in the area where I lived, in the physical area that I lived, upstate New York. And I had been traveling. I traveled with my job, and I'd gone to a lot of meetings locally as well as throughout the states. I'd been in meetings in Florida and in Nebraska and in California. I know we have a person here in Cal from California. I always say that all the meetings were the same, except in California they were a little different. <laughs> they used the same literature, but there's a little bit different there, the ones that I went to in, in the San Francisco area. But I come back and I said, how can Al-Anon be the same all the way around? Every place, no matter where you go, they have the same literature, they have the same philosophy, it's a re reasonably the same meeting structure, and all the people have that same look, and they're happy, and they're smiling. Wonderful. I remember calling an answering service uh, intergroup in California. And I said, I need a meeting. And she's, this gal says, oh, yeah, we'll, we'll have somebody pick you out. 
That's your motel. They picked me up. They drove me 25 miles to a meeting and brought me back to the motel. Isn't that great? But this gal said to me something I'll never forget. She said, isn't Al-Anon a wonderful philosophy of life? And it never dawned on me it was a philosophy of life. At that time, I was only there because my spouse was alcoholic. A philosophy of life. A way of living. So you never know when you talk to somebody just walking down the hall or on the telephone, you'll never know what you'll say will stick with them. And of course, I have had a lot of opportunities to meet a lot of people. When I went back to my my own group, I says to them, I heard that that there's a service structure. What the heck is that? And a gal who's been in Alamont for 20 years, she says to me, well, there's a there's a handbook in our coffee box. Look it up. So I did that, and, and I found out about things called group representatives and district representatives and, and uh, all that kind of thing. And I thought, well, we don't have any of those. She says, well, we don't really need it. You know, we have a, in upstate New York, you have a group that would meet in a little town, say, of 50,000 uh, 50, people, or they may have two meetings there. Another town might have 10,000 people that have one meeting. Another little town would have 250 that have a meeting. And these people are rather... They didn't move around. They stayed in their own little meetings. So, but I was going to all those places, and I knew a lot of the people. So I, I started talking to people about becoming a GR. Becoming a GR was the only job I ever asked for. I said to my group, I'll be the GR if nobody else wants to be it. And they said, good, be the GR. They didn't know what that was. We got, I got to be a G group representative. And I got, uh, we finally had a little district meeting of everybody I could find. We got together and... And since at this time I was separated from my spouse and I had a lot of time, didn't have any kids to worry about, I got elected as district representative. And so I sat down and I wrote a letter to New York, the New York office, and I said, I'm a district representative. We're just getting organized. Now what do I do? And they sent me a return letter saying, we've contacted your delegate and she will be getting in contact with you to let you know the process. And the delegate who lived in Rochester, New York, came down with an entourage of people and they told us what the service structure was about. And we had, I had a lot of opposition. Uh, people said things like, we're not going to change this. It's working this way. And I said, well, it may work better. Let's try it. And, I, and it was really funny because a few people who were very adamant about not having group representatives later on became one because they finally realized that I wasn't trying to do anything other than what has been going on in many parts of the country. Well, I got, uh, I got to the, one of our conferences or uh, assemblies a few uh, months later. It was just me who was a district representative and uh, uh, one group representative went with me. And that was sort of interesting because I got to listen to a delegate's report. She had just come back from the World Service Conference and uh, I don't know whether you've had a lot of experience in some of your service meetings. Uh, this particular one, which wasn't necessarily... Uh, representative of all the ones I attended but this particular one they, they debated for about a half an hour whether, going to let the, whether or not they were going to let the delegate give her full report or not and I remember going home from it saying this is like living in an alcoholic home you know, all this fighting and, but yet everybody seemed to be friendly when they were done calling each other names you know and they all walked out hugging and everything was fine so but I learned that this is, this is the first way you deal with confrontation with, amongst friends in service, you know, it's a Elon or AA. I guess it's a safe place to have disagreements. So, 
my next assembly I went to, they needed a new alternate delegate because the alternate delegate had left from the uh, area. She, she had moved out, and they said their procedure was everybody who's a district representative must stand, and then we'll select from them who are standing an alternate delegate. Well, I stood up, and I was the only one standing. <laughs> so, you know, here is about, I came in Illinois in about 1977, and this is about 1980, I'm elected alternate delegate. And I'm not really sure what the service structure is yet. But you know what happened? Is because I went all to all the meetings as the alternate delegate, I learned so much. And we were, we were trying to deal with the problems of uh, the elections procedures and so forth, and communications, public information, the institutions, all those things. And, it, and listening to the concepts of service that were read today, they're mind-boggling, but unless you study them, you don't really understand what they're all about. Of course, now, the reason my story doesn't contain too much about my wife at this time is now I'm involved in something else. I don't have to think about that alcoholic. I mean, we still had problems, you know. Uh, she, her sobriety wasn't always that great, and certainly my serenity wasn't always that great. Every once in a while we'd have a good dog and cat fight at each other over the telephone or face-to-face. But it was, it's a growing process. It's a growing process. The delegate uh, informed the, the people at the World Service Conference or some of the friends the year that, her last year there that she says, wait till you see our new delegate coming up. He's going to have a man delegate. Now, how the hell she knew that, I don't know, because we, do, we had not had the election yet. And when we did have the election, six people stood, and we had how many, how many ballots to get out who was going to be elected, but I got elected delegate. And, it, and that was great. I went to the World Service Conference. The first year, everybody, everybody was wonderful. Every, I was awe, in awe of everybody. <clears throat> I met Lois, you know, the founder. Didn't know whether to kiss her ring or genuflect. I mean, Lois was just a simple person that she didn't really want anybody to pay a lot of attention to, but we all did anyhow. <clears throat> and I learned one important thing, too, that just because you get elected to an office doesn't mean you're any better of a person you're just as equal as anybody else. In Al-Anon, we don't have any superior people. We're all equals. I'm sure that's the same way in AA. Doesn't, we don't really care. We use first names not to protect our anonymity. We use first names to show that we are all equal. And when you go to a meeting, it doesn't make any difference whether you're the mayor of the city or whether you're some big wheel, a vice president of a corporation, or whether you're the janitor or maid. You walk in that meeting, we're all equal, regardless of what social structure you come from. The same way when we go into service. It doesn't make any difference whether you're the delegate or a trustee. When you walk into an LM meeting, you're just as good as a person who isn't one of those things. And also the important thing is since our triangle is upside down, all the groups are at the top, and as you go down the service ladder, and I always say that, go down the service ladder, you're not becoming a supervisor to people, you're serving more people. As a group representative, I found out there was 10 or 12 members of my group that I had to bring information back from the district and from the area. When, when I became a, the district representative, I was talking to more groups. When I became a, a delegate, I now wasn't necessarily re- representing the area I came from. I attended the World Service Conference to bring together a major group conscience for worldwide Illinois. You don't, it's not like being a, uh, a representative from Alabama when you go to Congress and bring your constituents' vote up there. No, 
you bring your experience, strength, and hope to that conference so that when, when they deal with something, you can't help but know what goes on in your area, but you're representing Worldwide Al-Anon, the good of a bigger group, Worldwide Al-Anon. And so I had learned those kinds of things. The second year, though, that I was delegate, it was really bad for me, and I think it was because Bill was still dealing with Bill's anger. You know, it takes a while for the anger that you have pushed down inside you and not allowed to come out. It takes a while for it to bubble up. And when it bubbles up, sometimes you get things you don't want to happen, and that's what happened to me. Now, there was probably a lot of things going on at the World Service Conference that year that needed attention, but the way I was giving it attention was very negative, and I was doing a lot of uh, cursing and swearing and accusations. And I remember one gal come up to me and said to me, Bill, I like what you're saying, but I don't like the way you're saying it. And I thought about that. I thought, I need to clean up my act if I want people to hear what I'm saying. And that was good. The next year when I went back, things were better for me. And I had a good, good year. But when I was walking away from the conference, somebody said to me, would you ever consider putting your name in for trustee? And at that time, I thought, who in the hell wants to be a trustee? They don't. They don't do anything. They don't pay any attention to us. <laughs> and they certainly isn't something I want to be. Well, eventually I did, and I got elected as a trustee. And what a learning experience that was. And what a wonderful opportunity I had. This past year, I attended my 11th World Service Conference, and every one of them has been better than the one before. And my recovery has changed so much because people used to say to me that I'm, I'm, very, I'm a very intense person. And I still am, but I'm intense in a different way. Uh, I, I like that sign, sign up there, love and be, and, and be loved. You have to love yourself first before you can love anybody else. And that's what I had to learn in Illinois, how to love Bill first. I told you I was raised in a nice environment, I had a loving family, but I always thought there was something wrong with me deep down. I had a hard time accepting me where I was. I always wanted to be a different kind of a person. And somewhere along the line, I finally realized in, in order for you to be the person you'd like to be, you have to accept you for the person you are today. And that was very difficult for me because most of us want to ignore where we are. We would like always to be somewhere else. And that old little saying, like, bloom where you are planted is so appropriate. You know, you're here today and the only thing you can do is do your very best that you can. I've listened to wonderful speakers this week, and I, I often wondered, uh, my God, how can I compete with anybody who's so good like that? And I got my courage to change for God while I was meditating this morning, and it says something to the effect is, God has something for you to say, and that's all you have to think about. You don't have to worry about anybody else. I have a message and whether, you, whether it's appropriate for you or not, it's not important. It may be appropriate for somebody else. I've had a lot of fun in Al-Anon. I've had a lot of opportunities. It's, it's mind-boggling to think that I am grateful that I married an alcoholic. The hair in the back of my neck just stands right up. But I'm happy. I don't mind being by myself. I like myself today. My children and I have a wonderful relationship. That's a long part of the story that I can't tell you today because of the time. 
but it wasn't always good. Even after I got divorced and the kids were in the house and I had to come up with all the rules and how we were going to do things because a single parent isn't an easy job. But it all worked out. I had to ask two of my children to leave the home. They were over 21, but I had to ask them to leave. And this, my son, when I asked him to leave, he said, Dad, where do I go? I said, I don't know. That's your problem. He said, your, your, your uh, behavior is totally unacceptable to me. And I've warned you about it. You must leave. He went to the Air Force. They, sh- they must have done something to him in the Air Force basic training because when he came back, he's one of the nicest guys I know. <laughs> and he said to me, Dad, I didn't realize how good I had it at home here. And he and I are great friends. My, my oldest daughter, I had to ask her to leave the home too. She was doing some things and I said, it's not appropriate, that kind of conduct around these other three children. She's 30, 32 years old, and she's wonderful. She's a, new, a mother. Her, her daughter is about 23 months old, and I just was visiting her last month. We get along great. My son, uh, my younger son, I have two boys and two girls. Um, he's great. I've got to tell you, this part of the story is, I did exactly what my dad did. I quit hugging kids after a period of time. And I didn't know I was doing this, because that's just automatic. You just become a, your parent, whether you like it or not, unless you take conscience effort to change it and when I was in Al-Anon one day one meeting we were, we were talking and laughing about are we, like, are we like this at home are we nice people at home or are we only nice people to one another here and I'm driving home saying no I'm still an SOB at home I'm this authority figure I have to have everything done my way I have learned how to hug these kids and I remember the one boy in particular he, uh, three of my children went to Alateen uh, they didn't have a choice they went figured this, if they needed their teeth fixed, I'd take them to a dentist. They need their mind fixed, they're going to Alateen. And they, they didn't have to stay, but they had to go. The one kid that didn't go, get, go to a lot of Alateen meetings, he, he is the one, so he's the one I really quit hugging. And I knew I really had to work on him. So when I started hugging him, he just would just cringe. I'd say, hey, Jeff, come over here, give Dad a hug. You know, I'd give him a hug. He's about 14 or 15. And he would just, just cringe right up, you know. And later on, I walk over and say, well, Jeff, come on. He's, oh, God, here he comes again. <laughs> but that kid is a loving kid today. He finally learned to hug back. And when I call him on the phone, the last thing he says, I love you, Dad. And it's really great. So I have four grandchildren, uh, three girls and a boy. And they're, of course, you know, get me talking about that. I'll show you the pictures. <laughs> So I, I thank Eleanor because I now have an excellent relationship with my children. And when I, last time I was in upstate New York visiting my oldest daughter, I called my former wife up and I said, how are you doing? How's things going? And we chatted. Next day she stopped over with some donuts and we sat around and talked for a couple of hours. And you'd swear we were a happily married couple if anybody would walk in and see us sitting around playing with our granddaughter. And that's wonderful. You know, you don't have to be married to be friends. Some people are married and they aren't friends. But this is a miracle of life, this program. And I can't tell you how grateful I am. I'm so happy to see the cooperation that I've seen this weekend with AA and Al-Anon. See, I thought this was an AA roundup, but I was informed this is a fellowship roundup. It's AA and Al-Anon. And you don't always see that. Some places it's a we and they. But here I can see it's truly, truly a fellowship program. There's love for everybody here. And that's absolutely wonderful. I'm so happy I've met all you people. I thank the committee again for inviting me. And I'll be around this weekend. If you want to ask me any questions about anything, I'll try to answer them. 
Thank you for everything. I love you all.